Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the September 2011 Southern California Research Lodge Fraternal Review and is a reprint of an article from the February 2008 Georgia Masonic Messenger. The Two Saints John by Gary D. Lemons, Past Grandmaster. Early in the entered apprentice experience, the brother beginning his Masonic education is asked a question that requires in its answer an allusion to the Holy Saints John. Countless thousands of Freemasons worldwide in various grand jurisdictions have responded with the appropriate words throughout the centuries, but what, in reality, do they mean? Who were the Holy Saints John? Masonic tradition reveals that they were St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist. St. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Christ. He was originally the only patron saint of Masons, as Mackey says the name of St. John the Evangelist was not introduced until about the 16th century. Mackey further quotes the Charter of Cologne, a document originating in Amsterdam about 1535, quote, We celebrate annually the memory of St. John, the forerunner of Christ and the patron of our community, end quote. The Knight Hospitallers also dedicated their order to him, and the ancient expression of our ritual, which speaks of a lodge of the Holy St. John of Jerusalem, probably refers to the same saint. Frederick Dalko, Masonic historian and one of the founders of the Supreme Council of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry in Charleston in 1801, says that the stern integrity of St. John the Baptist, which induced him to forego every minor consideration in discharging the obligations which he owed to God, the unshaken firmness with which he met martyrdom rather than betray his duty to his master, make him a fit patron for the Masonic institution. St. John the Evangelist was the patron saint of Freemasonry who earned the elevated station by his constant admonition of the cultivation of brotherly love. Lodges are now universally dedicated to the two Saints John. It may be further said that St. John the Evangelist completed with his learning what St. John the Baptist forged with his zeal. There is no reference in the Holy Bible that would substantiate that either St. John the Baptist or St. John the Evangelist were Masons in the operative sense. Indeed, as the speculative fraternity would not develop for another 1700 years, it is ridiculous to associate either of these men as connected with our craft today. Yet the conduct and deportment exhibited by the lives of these two great men so encapsulate the tenets and principles of Freemasonry that we find no peer to them among mortal men for objects of dedication. St. John the Baptist called for repentance. He preached that men should turn from their wicked ways, be baptized as an outward sign of an inward change, and go forth in the path of righteousness. He was not comparable to the modern-day evangelicals who embraced thousands of converts in their revivals and crusades. Rather, John the Baptist demanded fruits, meat for repentance. He required his converts to present evidence that demonstrated a sincere change in heart and a true atonement for their reprehensible character. 
In particular, John the Baptist was critical of those in positions of authority in the religious hierarchy of the day. He called them a generation of vipers and chastised not only the religious leaders, but the secular leaders as well. It was his admonitions against Herod and the king's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife that ultimately cost John the Baptist his life. Jesus made a peculiar statement about John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find these words, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom should not be mistaken, for as of heaven he is greater than he. St. John the Evangelist is said to have been the disciple that Jesus loved. This is a singular statement. Did Jesus not love all his disciples? The Gospel of John, said to have been written by this saint, is one of the most cryptic and esoteric in the Holy Bible. In the initial verses we hear, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. St. John the Evangelist is the author of three epistles, all of which deal with the issue of brotherly love. Finally, he is generally accepted to be the author of the book of Revelation, the most esoteric book of the Holy Bible. Jesus made a unique statement about this disciple. In a conversation with Simon Peter, we find, Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Some have assumed that this meant John should not die. Jesus did not say that. He was just telling Simon Peter, who was full of himself, that it wasn't any of his business, if Jesus should want John to remain alive until his return. It is interesting to note that we have no record of St. John the Evangelist's death. The demise of all the other disciples is accounted for, but nothing for St. John the Evangelist. Incidentally, Simon Peter is my favorite human character in the Holy Bible. I guess it is because he is so human. Peter desperately wanted to do right. He wanted to please the Lord, but like so many of us, he was hindered by pride, ego, arrogance, and temper. He was very brave and blusterous. At the same time, he could be cowardly. Like me, Simon Peter needed the common gavel applied to his rough edges on a regular basis, and the Lord gave it to him frequently. Later in life, Peter became a smooth ashlar, and I doubt not that he is part of that spiritual building, that house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. It is clear, then, why Freemasonry selected St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist for our patron saints. We do not become Freemasons when we take the degrees. We become Freemasons when we determine to do so in our hearts when we realize that we have a void, a need, a longing that needs to be filled. When we petition the Lodge, we rarely have any idea of what we were getting into. Many of us were surprised by what we found, but each of us was looking for something that would make us better men. We were, each, seeking self-improvement. St. John the Baptist demanded fruits met for repentance. We comply with that demand by our deportment both inside and outside of the Lodge, and by our deeds of usefulness to our fraternity but more important to our families, our communities, indeed to our world at large. It is important here to be clear that Freemasonry and our Masonic experience should not be mistaken for a religious experience. There is nothing in the Masonic life that will get us into heaven. Freemasonry does not provide a plan of salvation for the soul. Rather, the Masonic experience is a fraternal environment that will serve well as the handmaiden of religion and allow us to still another avenue to practice those principles that we have embraced in our religious lives. St. John the Evangelist required that we love one another. More than anything else, he stressed that love, unconditional, unchanging, and unrelenting, was necessary for the true Christian. So should the same be for the true Freemason. St. John the Evangelist also called for an application of our intellect. He encouraged the use of our minds. 
Now, my brethren, not all of our members are scholars. Not all of our brethren can write papers or read and understand abstract philosophical treatises. But I submit to you that we can all learn a little something. Further, I submit to you that at every lodge meeting there should be a little something for the mind. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out dissertation. Perhaps the worshipful master can ask a well-informed brother, well ahead of time, to give a five-minute talk on any of the million Masonic questions. What is the Lodge of the Holy Saints John of Jerusalem? Some say that there is not now and there never was such a lodge. Originally, lodges were dedicated to King Solomon. Dedications to the Saints John were made by other organizations as early as the 3rd century when the church adopted the two pagan celebrations of summer and winter solstices and made them our Saints John's Day in the summer and Saints John's Day in winter. It was wholly natural for operative Masons, having dedicated their craft to the Holy Saints John, to begin to believe that both St. Johns were themselves craftsmen. Craftsmen must have a lodge, and where should that lodge be but Jerusalem? Hence the lodge of the Holy Saints John at Jerusalem. Today we use the phrase as a starting point for a Masonic career. By its inclusion into our ritual, Masons mean that only that our craft is dedicated to these holy men whose precepts and practices, ideas and virtues, teachings and examples, all Freemasons should try to follow. The following article is from the October 2011 Scottish Rite Reporter. Consider a Table Lodge and Festive Board by Sanford Hoist, Junior Warden, Southern California Research Lodge. As the hour of nine approached during the Table Lodge held by Santa Monica Palisades Lodge Number 307, most worshipful Stephen Doan, past Grand Master of California, rose and wrapped his gavel once. Brethren, it is a custom at festive boards that as the hand of the clock form the angle of a square at the hour of nine, we join in thought and make this a moment to be dedicated in tender, loving reflection to our absent brethren. If any should be lonely or with strangers, they will feel at this moment that they are with their own brethren. Thus may brotherly love continue. The room full of brothers rose as one and drank the toast to their absent brethren. The growing popularity of these table lodges has led to more lodges giving it a try in recent years. Among the reasons brothers offer this favorable response are the camaraderie of an evening devoted to eating and drinking and a truly enjoyable ritual in which everyone participates. It should be mentioned that in most U.S. states this is not an official craft lodge ritual, but rather more of a tradition handed down from one lodge to another. Other reasons for its popularity are the toasts made to groups of brothers, with almost everyone being honored at some time during the evening. It is also an enjoyable duty to raise your glass to other brothers as their worthy accomplishments are told, then toss back a shot in their honor. Lest this sound like a gathering of candidates for Alcoholics Anonymous, it should be pointed out that current tradition calls for soda to be available as an alternative to the wine generally used for these toasts. And, even in lodges serving wine, as the night progresses, more of the brothers find themselves switching to that softer alternative. The due form of these table lodges has evolved over time, but a landmark in its evolution came in 1989 when right-worshipful John Mock Hillert produced a festive board and table lodge for the general craft based on his research of existing materials on Masonic table lodges. This seems to have now become a standard source for table lodge ritual in the USA. The Masonic Service Association has published an excellent small book on this work titled Masonic Feasts, Banquets, and Table Lodges. About 10 Grand Lodges in the USA have adopted some form of table lodge ritual or guidelines, while the rest allow lodges to use the MSA booklet or similar guides. 
A listing of the Table Lodge ritual used by Burbank Lodge number 406 is available from their website. How does a group of brothers start putting together a Table Lodge? James Lincoln Warren, master of Santa Monica Palisades, replied, In 2005, worshipful Ara Maloyan introduced our Table Lodge and Festive Board. Harry Maslin, past master, was tasked with being the first Toastmaster and adapted the Table Lodge ceremony, and he has served as Toastmaster for every Table Lodge to date. As organizer of the Southern California Research Lodge Speakers Program, I was invited to be the guest speaker at Worshipful Warren's Table Lodge. Fortunately, everyone drank several toasts before I spoke, at which point they would have applauded anything, so all was well. The unique character of these table lodges seemed to have formed among the influential military lodges of the American and British colonial period. Some of the earliest Masonic lodges in colonial America appeared to have been field British soldiers and officers, into which a number of their American cousins were initiated. The Table Lodge has preserved this experience by requiring that all items be referred to in colonial military terms throughout the evening. The shot glass used for toast is called a cannon. The drinks are shot from the cannons, reasonable explanation for why the world calls that utensil a shot glass today. Instead of drinking the toast down, you are called upon to drink it dune with the appropriate colonial British accent. And it goes on and on. And after the first few drinks, it becomes surprisingly easy to do so. Hopefully, you will have a chance to experience it for yourself. And if you have already participated in a table lodge, consider lending your services to help a new lodge of brothers have this remarkable experience. It is no secret that brotherhood in a Masonic lodge is enjoyable and rewarding. The table lodge and festive board is enjoyable and rewarding times two. The following article is from the March 2011 Scottish Rite Reporter. The Lost Master's Word by Stephen M. Kyle, Roseville Lodge, number 222. Asking someone to describe the meaning of the Lost Master's Word is a bit like asking someone to describe God's hair color. We can try, but ultimately each of us will hear, speak, and live out the Lost Master's Word in a slightly different manner. The Lost Master's Word was a unifying force in the lives of our first three Grand Masters. This word, held inviolate by our founding Grand Masters, was to be their gift to other worthy men who, upon completion of the task given them, would have proven their fidelity to the Brotherhood. The substitute for the ancient Master's Word is given to a brother today after traveling that rough and rugged road and proving their fidelity to the Brotherhood, thus uniting the Brotherhood in the same manner as our ancient Grand Masters. The Master Mason Candidate Guide, published by the Grand Lodge of California, tells us that the search is ultimately for personal enlightenment to enable us to determine our appropriate place in the universe. While it is true that the Lost Master's Word represents personal enlightenment and finding one's place in the world the universe, on a more fundamental level, I see it as representing trust. All human interactions, relationships, and friendships begin with trust. All of them end without it. Masonic tradition informs us that we are a sacred band of, or society of friends and brothers. Friendship comes before brotherhood. Before anything else, Masons are friends first. This is the beauty of the Lost Master's Word. It is still given as a gift, as the ancients intended, to men who prove their fidelity to the Brotherhood. The Word is given as a result of finding a brother trustworthy, true, and faithful. The loss of the Master's Word at the hands of the evil, treacherous men hid forever a word which was intended to bind brothers together in a unity of trust which could never be broken. 
Our two remaining grandmasters, knowing what the word represented, chose to invest us with a substitute whereby the unity of brotherhood would continue to flourish for as long as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. This word, though lost, is a perpetual reminder of the trust and fidelity acknowledged by each brother upon greeting one another knowing that whereby we once traveled this road alone, we now travel as a society of friends and brothers cemented together by brotherly love, relief, and truth. The following article is from the April 2007 Scottish Rite Reporter. King Solomon In many of our Masonic degrees, reference is made to King Solomon. Here we will examine who Solomon was. The name Solomon in Hebrew roughly translates to peaceful, complete, or prosperous, from the Hebrew Shalom. The name given by God to Solomon in the Bible is Jedidiah, meaning friend of God, or, more precisely, beloved of Yah. Solomon was David's eleventh son. His mother was Bathsheba. According to the biblical account, David passed over his firstborn son, Adoniah, and instead declared Solomon heir to the throne. When Adoniah tried to seize the throne, Bathsheba and Nathan appealed to David, who immediately had Solomon crowned king. During Solomon's long reign of forty years, the Hebrew monarchy, according to the Bible, gained its highest splendor. This period has been called the Augustan Age of the Jewish Annals. Solomon is described as surrounding himself with all the luxuries and the external grandeur of an eastern monarch, and his government prospered. He entered into an alliance with Hiram I, king of Tyre, who in many ways greatly assisted him in his numerous undertakings. For some years before his death, David was engaged in the active work of collecting materials for building a temple in Jerusalem as a permanent abode for the Ark of the Covenant. Solomon is described as completing its construction with the help of an architect also named Hiram, and other materials sent from Hiram king of Tyre. The description of the temple is remarkably similar to that of surviving remains of Phoenician temples of the time, and it is certainly plausible from the point of view of archaeology that the temple was constructed to the design of Phoenicians. It is also plausible that the Phoenicians built it for themselves. From a critical point of view, Solomon's building of a temple for Yahweh should not be seen as an act resulting from peculiar devotion to Yahweh, since Solomon is also described as erecting temples for a number of other deities. Solomon's apparent initial devotion to Yahweh, appearing in, for example, his dedication prayer, are seen by textual scholars as a product of a much later writer. Solomon being credited with the views only after Jerusalem had actually become the religious center of the kingdom. After the completion of the temple, Solomon is described as erecting many other buildings of importance in Jerusalem. For the long space of thirteen years, he was engaged in the erection of a royal palace on a hilly promontory in central Jerusalem. Solomon also constructed great works for the purpose of securing a plentiful supply of water for the city and the millow for the defense of the city. However, excavations of Jerusalem have shown a distinct lack of monumental architecture from the era, and remains of neither the temple nor Solomon's palace have ever been found. Solomon is also described as rebuilding major cities elsewhere in Israel, creating the port of Ezion-Geber, and constructing Tadmor in the wilderness as a commercial depot and military outpost. Solomon is additionally described as having amassed a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen. More archaeological success has been achieved with the major cities Solomon is said to have rebuilt, these all have substantial ancient remains, including impressive six-chambered gates and ashlar palaces, 
as well as trough-like structures outside the buildings that early archaeologists have identified as stables for Solomon's horses. However, although early scholars attributed these remains to Solomon, modern reassessment has caused an increasing majority of archaeologists to date them much later, to the era of Omrides. In addition, the so-called troughs are now thought to have actually been vats for distilling opium. According to the Bible, during Solomon's reign, Israel enjoyed great commercial prosperity, with extensive traffic being carried on by land with Tyre, Egypt, and Arabia, and by sea with Tarshish, or Spain, Ophir, and South India. King Solomon is one of the central biblical figures in Jewish heritage that have lasting religious, national, and political aspects. As the constructor of the first temple in Jerusalem, and last ruler of the United Jewish Kingdom of Israel from ancient times, until it was reestablished in the modern state of Israel, Solomon is associated with the peak golden age of the independent kingdom of Israel, as well as a source of judicial and religious wisdom. Solomon also appears in the Quran as Suleiman, Suleiman, etc., and there's two different spellings for that. The Quran refers to Suleiman as the son of David, as a prophet, and as a great ruler imparted by God with tremendous wisdom, favor, and special powers, just like his father, David. The Quran states that Suleiman had under his rule not only people, but also hosts of jinn. It also states that Suleiman was able to understand the language of the birds and ants, and to see some of the hidden glory in the world that was not accessible to common human beings. Ruling a large kingdom that extended south into Yemen, he was known throughout the lands for his wisdom and fair judgments. According to the Quran, when Suleiman was to die, he stood up in prayer holding his cane, there he silently passed away, but by God's will did not fall. He remained in this position, and everyone, including the jinns, thought that he was still alive. Finally, God ordered a termite to weaken the cane so that the body of Suleiman fell. It was thereafter believed that the jinn did not know everything, and only God had knowledge of it all. More Masonic Light, number 314, Ed Halpus, and this is from the Southern California Research Lodge. Dear Masonic Student, Below is something you're likely to find interesting. There has long been a friendly debate about the terms sublime degree of a master mason and sublime degree of master mason. The following does not settle the discussion, but it does provide some useful knowledge of the degree and also something to think about it. It comes from Freemason's Guide and Compendium, a very good book to have for Masonic learning. The Sublime Degree of a Master Mason it is believed that the phrase, the sublime degree of a master mason, first occurs in the year 1754 in the certificate drawn up by the Grand Lodge of Ireland relating to a lodge at Lurgan, number 134, Irish Constitution, and that it was used by another Irish lodge, that of the Royal Scots, number 11, in 1762. In England, the phrase was used in 1767 by the Lodge of Friendship, number 6, but did not come into general use in lodges under the premier Grand Lodge until near the end of the 18th century, but where we do find it, there we also find as a rule evidence of the ancients' influence. In 1760, Thomas Dunkerley, as master of a lodge held aboard the Vanguard, signed a certificate, the original is in Quebec, a photograph of it in the Grand Lodge Library, to the effect that a fellow craft, having sustained with strength, firmness, and courage the most painful forks and severest trials, we gave unto him the most sublime degree of master. In Bristol, in 1768, a lodge founded and erased all within the twelve months, gloried in the name of the Sun Lodge of Perpetual Friendship number 421, and in the July of its short life, its minutes refer to the sublime of a master mason. 
and in the month following to the sublime degree of a royal archmason. The Saints John Lodge of Henley in Arden, which had a few years of existence beginning in 1791, at one time called the Master Mason's degree honorable or respectable. So far as Scotland is concerned, we learn that in the 18th century the third degree was usually denominated the high degree of a Master Mason. But in Lodge Holyrood House, according to R.S. Lindsay's History of the Lodge, the degree had among its various designations, between 1776 and 1778, the Honorable Degree, the High and Honorable Degree, the Noble and Honorable Degree, the Stupendous Degree, and all of a Master Mason. Reference has just been made to a Respectable Degree. More than one lodge applied to the third degree, as also to Master Masons, that old-fashioned adjective so peculiarly Masonic, so commonly misunderstood. The candidate is early advised to dedicate himself to such pursuits as may enable him to be respectable in life, that is. He should so comport himself as to earn the esteem and regard of those who look upon him, that being the original meaning of the word respect, and the meaning borne by it at the time when the word respectable was brought into the ritual. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.